turn to the screen, look on your phone, your iPad. I, man, we have so many different ways we can get into the Word now. <clears throat> I remember years ago, we used to go on cruises. I'd carry all these books with me. Now you just take your iPad with you. Everything. You got the Library of Congress right there. Brother Morgan says he loves Google. Because even the search engine in my Bible app, it can't find what I'm looking for, but I put it on Google, and it comes up every single time. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Exodus chapter 23. <clears throat> Looking at the clock, be mindful of when I am beginning, which I normally fail to do. Exodus 23 and 20. Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way. Notice that angel there is capitalized. To keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. 2 Timothy 4, verse number 7, where Paul wrote to his young protege and said, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Let's take a moment, greet somebody. You can get out of your, still say pew, even though we don't have pews. Get out of your row. Get out of your comfort zone. Go greet somebody. <clears throat> Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Now, I don't know why, brother, but I, I sound to me like, to me, I'm sounding like I'm in a barrel, like I'm in a barrel. I don't know what you're hearing, but I'm in a barrel. Coming out. Praise God. Well, I don't mess with that stuff. They know what they're doing, and if it's fixable, they'll fix it. If not, we'll deal with it. God bless you. you may be seated. The account of uh, Israel's exodus from Egypt and their subsequent passage through the wilderness. Uh, that episode, those events, the history of that account has been dissected, cross-sectioned. It has been put under the microscope with every minute detail of their journey. We have scrutinized it, analyzed it, memorized it, examined it. I mean, it has been... Cross-section every way you can imagine. And there's a reason why, and it's not just because it's interesting or provocative or that we're curious about it, but the reason that it is uh, so, uh, we are so drawn to it is because of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 11. He said, now all these things happened unto them for in samples or examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. And so the intricate, uh, finite details of Israel's passage through the wilderness carries very uh, good instructions, instructions that are vital to all New Testament believers, especially now, to us upon whom the end of this age has come. 
So the things that God's people encountered on their way from Egypt to the promised land, those things a Christian, you and I, will inevitably encounter and experience on our respective journey. That's what Paul was talking about. Pay attention to what Israel experienced because you are going to experience and encounter many of the same things that they did when they were uh, on their wilderness journey. Uh, the Bible says we are pilgrims and strangers. That means like them, we have never been home yet. We have never seen our home where uh, our father dwells. We are on our way from our new birth to home. And we are pilgrims and strangers in the earth. Uh, because we are so near now, prophetically, to the finish line, uh, we should be avid students of those who have already made that perilous trek through the wilderness of Sinai, thus preparing us for the obstacles that we will encounter and for the pitfalls and for hindrances and the battles that we must inevitably fight. Now, some of us are veterans uh, in our Christian walk, and others are a little bit newer than some of the others. Uh, and so we have fought some of these battles, and uh, some of you are fighting them right now. Some of you are dealing with some things right now. Uh, we're going to mention some things, and you can say, I'm there right now. I'm experiencing that uh, in my present life. But when God brought Israel out of Egypt, it was not just to deliver them from hard labor. It was not just to liberate them from the other hardships and restrict restrictions that are associated with slavery. God's plan was much deeper than that. You see, a lot of people think that God just saved you from hell. No, God saved you for a divine purpose. Now, once you're redeemed, God has a purpose for you within the body of Christ. When Jesus said, occupy till I come, he wasn't talking about just sit there and, and hold your place in line. He was talking about so much more. So God could have easily, without question, uh, in a blink of an eye, transferred the wealth of Egypt uh, to the Hebrews. He could have given them national, military, and economic control over the nation and over all of the systems of Egypt, but he did not do that. Instead, God chose to bring Israel out of Egypt and into the land uh, that was part of the covenant promise that he had made with Abraham. I think it behooves all of us today, in this place today, to say, God, what is my place in the body? What part of the body am I? Where do I fit into the kingdom of God? What did you save me for? Yeah, I know you love me. You don't want me to go to hell, but now I'm saved. Why am I here? And so what they discovered and what we have learned by reading of their account is that embracing the Abrahamic covenant and inheriting the promises that God had made to Abraham turned out to be a lot more difficult than merely changing their address. 
Just because you're out of Egypt now, you're in a different time zone. Just because you're in it, you're in a different zip code, doesn't mean that everything's going to automatically fall in your lap and fall in place. Just because you've changed your address, there's more to this than uh, just changing your address and your zip code. And so that's what they found out. They thought, man, we're out of there. Everything's going to be great. Yeah, it's going to be better, but there's some things in front of you that you're going to have to endure. I will say to those who are present and to those who perhaps are watching online that coming out is only part of the salvation experience. Just part of it. What God delivered you from is your testimony. What God brings you into is your ministry. You got to come out to have a testimony. But you got to go into something to have a ministry. 1 Peter 2 and 9, it is written, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The redeemed of God are not a chosen generation, nor are they a royal priesthood or a holy nation or a peculiar people because of what we have brought, been brought out of. But we are these things because of what he has brought us in to. Now, I know that just didn't register. It just didn't connect. It just didn't jive. It's not what we've been brought out of. It's what we have been brought in to. So just as Israel was called out of Egypt, and as they were charged by God to enter into the promised land, believers are called out of darkness and once free from the bondage of darkness and sin and unbelief. Now they're charged, not just called, they are charged to come into the marvelous light of God. So when God calls a person out of darkness, there is a certain expectation that that individual will go on to enter into the amazing and awe-inspiring light of Almighty God. I want to say it again. There is an expectation that now that you have received the Holy Ghost and you have spoken with other tongues and you've been baptized in Jesus' name, there is an expectation from God, from the angels, and from God's people that you're not going to stop there. You're going to continue and growing and going on and enter into some divine expectations that God has placed upon you. The marvelous light is referring to kingdom citizenship. It's referring to the covenant relationship that is now available to you as a born-again believer that was not previously available to you. So in the same manner, God had high expectations for the children of Israel after they came out of Egypt and I know that most of you have 
read that account many times in the scriptures. You know uh, about Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. It wasn't supposed to be nearly that long. You know about their ups and downs and their stumbles and their failures and all of the things that happened there. And so you understand that they did not meet God's expectations. What they didn't understand about this, yeah, we're out, hallelujah. But you're not going to receive or experience your full potential until you enter into Canaan. Sadly, they didn't know that. They didn't know that coming out of Egypt was not enough. They assumed that their escape from their taskmasters and from the because of the death of Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, that this was the fulfillment of God's plan. This is it. This is done. He did what he said he was going to do, and here we are. What they did not understand is that the reason God brought them out of Egypt was for them to enter into the land of Canaan. We're driving that home, aren't we? So God didn't save Israel so they could sit around and eat manna every morning and Plucked the meat off of quails every evening. He brought them out for a much greater purpose than that. And that speaks to me personally, whether it speaks to you or not. So it's not what God saved you from. It's what God saved you for. Something happened within these former slaves before they could enter, something had to happen before they could ever enter into uh, Canaan. And what was to happen to them would happen in the wilderness of Sinai. If you've lived for God for longer than 15 minutes, then you understand that the terrain before you changes, sometimes very rapidly. And that uh, there are things that, we can only learn when we're in the wilderness. It is God's uh, plan for all of his people. And so the wilderness was where Israel would learn how to protect themselves from their enemies. The wilderness was where they would learn how to socially and peacefully cohabit with one another under the moral uh, perpetuities of the law. It was where they would learn how to govern themselves according to the terms of the moral and judicial dictates of that law. So in other words, the wilderness was where God would teach these slaves how to be a self-governing nation. But the tutorial benefit of the wilderness of Sinai was more than just its rugged landscape. It was more than just its harsh and unforgiving terrain, the wilderness where God would prove, provide for, and prepare his people uh, was the classroom where they would learn. Unfortunately, instead of learning about uh, the kingdom of God, instead of growing from their experiences, they became frustrated, frustrated. They even became irritated and angry and uh, disillusioned and disheartened. That wasn't what was supposed to happen to them. That wasn't why they went through the things they went through, but that is the result of those things. 
That's the result of that. You do know that uh, two people can face the same obstacle and they will face them with a different spirit and a different attitude. God made me a certain way. I, I really don't want to put too much blame on him for this, but when I am backed into a corner, you better prepare yourself because I am coming out and I'm coming out strong. He just wired me that way. The devil knows don't pin that guy in because he's going to come out fighting. That's just the way I'm wired. You're, you may be wired a different way. Maybe you'll cower in the corner until God intervenes. But see, we're wired differently. But God will take us through the same stuff, through the same experiences, so that we will learn different things about that and from that along the way, which was the case with the children of Israel. But instead of learning and growing and becoming strong in their God and full of faith, they were very disheartened and disillusioned. And when the Lord set me upon this mission today to preach what I'm preaching, I suppose I even looked at the screen. You know that we're talking about crossing the finish line. And I had all kind of things that I thought uh, I would say, all kind of directions I thought we would go in. I mean, there is an, an infinite uh, stream of things that we could talk about concerning crossing the finish line. But as I began to get into uh, preparing for the message, I realized that God had, had taken me in another direction. Now, the end result is going to be the same, but I have confidence in God that where we're going to go from this point in the message is his will. Uh, I trust that God knows what he's doing because I know that I don't. And so we will just uh, believe that God is in control and the bishop doesn't have control at all. The curriculum in the Wilderness University of Sinai would pose a challenge to the most radical and hardcore believer. I can promise you that if you have a desire to do something for God that you will face uh, greater challenges than those that have no desire and just sit around and twiddle their thumbs. There's a lot of reasons for that, uh, none of which we're going to go into at the moment. But I know that your struggle will always be equivalent to the vocation wherewith you have been called. I will give you an example. The guy that is practicing and preparing for a uh, pool tournament, playing pool, shooting pool. His training is much different than the guy that's training for a cage fight. They train differently. They don't need the same uh, routine. They don't need the same level of fitness. And so the guy training for the cage fight is working hard because uh, his life depends on it when he steps into that ring or into that cage. So again, the struggle will be equivalent to the vocation wherewith you have been called. Your battle will be very strategically designed from the same blueprint from which comes your destiny and your purpose. Perhaps that's why so many people say, just leave me alone, God, and just help me to get home with, with the least amount of struggle, the least amount of pressure, the least amount of devils, the least amount of hardship. But if God calls you into ministry, you better put your shoulders back because you are preparing for some struggle along the way. 
But what's important for you to know is that somewhere in that vast wilderness, the children of Israel lost sight of something vitally important to them. Somewhere in their wilderness, they lost sight of the destination. They lost sight of where they were going and why they were going there. And their entire focus was on the struggle that was around them and the threat of the wilderness and the harshness of the wilderness. That's all they could see. That's all they could talk about. That's all they cared to know. They lost sight of why they were there. And once they lost sight, of their God-appointed destiny, the wilderness literally consumed them. Once they lost sight of the finish line, the wilderness completely overtook them and consumed three generations of Israelites. And so while the multitudes marched triumphantly out of Egypt, many of them would never cross the finish line. On the outset of their journey, the Lord had told them this should have been enough. <clears throat> he should have only had to say it one single time. And perhaps that's the only time it was said. Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. It just, I just had a memory of a time many, many years ago before we moved to southwest Florida. Went through something that was very difficult for me. And I remember going to prayer and I was weeping before the Lord. And I said unto the Lord, God, if I just had somebody else to pray with me, if I just had somebody else here now to pray with me, and I heard the still, small voice of God say, but I am here, but I am here, completely changed my spirit and my attitude, amen, I'm telling you. I'm telling you, God said, I'm going to be with you. Everything you go through, I'm going to be right there beside you. I'm going to be leading you in the way, and I will bring you into the place that I have prepared for you. So the same God that brought Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand promised to keep them in the way, to secure them in the way, and to bring them into the place that he had prepared for them. Hebrews chapter 3, 7 through 11 says, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. That means harden not your hearts like the children of Israel did when they endured the provocation of their wilderness experience. In the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works 40 years, wherefore, he says, I was grieved with that generation and said they do always err in their heart and they have not known my way. So I swore in my wrath 
they shall not enter into my rest. God said, I got to the place where I said, you're not going to cross the finish line. You're never going to finish this race. You're never going to make it into Canaan. You're never going to see the promised land. And God does not want that to happen to us. I believe that God has directed me to preach this because there are some people perhaps present here today who have been consumed by your wilderness. It's become an overwhelming experience in your life. How do I know that for sure? I can tell you because there are people that I don't see that should be here that are not here. I know it because I see among us people that are less enthusiastic about their walk with God than they used to be. I can see it because there are people uh, who are absent from the prayer room who used to be in the prayer room every Sunday morning. So well, I pray at home, then you don't understand the power or efficacy of corporate prayer. Because if you think praying at home is all that we need, you're wrong. John 14, Jesus spoke to us in verses 1 through 3, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. It almost seems like he's saying the same things to the church that was spoken to the children of Israel. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. Listen, if God calls me out of the grave, that's all right with me. When you come back, just call my name. So if you have joined the ranks of those who have repented of your sins, been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of those sins. Take a message from me, will you, sis? That's okay. I love it, man. That's, oh, that's great. That's great. That's, I just wish it was Sister Bruce so I could pick on her a little bit. That's okay, sis. Believe me. When you're important, you got to keep your phone on. Oh, Jesus, help me. That's what happens when you get bold in the Holy Ghost. You get silly, too. So if you've received the gift of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues, then you're somewhere between the world that Jesus has called you out of in that place, that special place that he has prepared for you. There's nothing now for you that have obeyed the gospel. Acts 2.38. There's nothing now that is more important than crossing the finish line. 
Everything else we can uh, put on a list of things that are important, and many things are, but there's nothing more important to you than that you, with God's help, that you cross the finish line. Matthew 16, 26, we quote it all the time. What is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? 1 Corinthians 9, 27, Paul said, I keep under my body, or I keep my body under subjection, he said, to bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a cast away. Paul understood when the anointing was on him, when he was speaking prophetically and souls were repenting and being baptized and receiving the Holy Ghost, Paul understood the short distance between where he was in his life, ministry, and relationship with God to failing and, and falling away and becoming a cast away. And so what profit is there if we have powerfully anointed ministries? If after we have preached to others and we have won souls and we have seen men and women delivered from the horrible effects of sin, if then we end up lost, we become castaways. So we've been in this thing now 49 years, and we've seen a lot of powerfully anointed men and women of God that didn't make it to the finish line. <clears throat> good men, good women of God that didn't make it to the finish line. So Paul said something before we go on in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all? But one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. So you have to finish the race in order for it to count. You can't get to the right throne judgment and say, God, I, I ran so far. And just you have to finish this race, or it doesn't count at all. Praise God. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 6, and 7. Uh, I'm now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. He said, I fought a good fight. You see, notice he did not say anything about wins and losses. He didn't say, I won every battle. He said, no, I fought a good fight. He said, I finished my course. I'm not the first to cross the finish line, but I finished my course, and I have kept the faith. Paul knew that he was near the finish line. God had revealed that to him, I'm sure, and that's when he wrote these words. But what I want you to know is that there was not one ounce of resentment in him. There was not one ounce of bitterness within him for all of the things that God allowed him to suffer and endure. Not one hint of resentment. 
that God let them stone him to death even though he would bring him back to life. Not one hint of resentment that he was beaten with rods three times when all the while they're beating him, he knows that God could have intervened at any moment, but he chose not to. See, he went through everything that he went through, enduring the thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, and he got to the end of his life. He even said, I bear in my body the marks and the scars of Jesus Christ, but I carry them without resentment and without bitterness toward God or toward those that gave me these scars and these wounds. So perhaps days, weeks, months, we do not know. Before he would cross the finish line, Paul joyfully wrote, he had fought a good fight. And he had finished his course. He had kept the faith. Now Paul categorically declared that he was ready to cross the finish line. But I do not presume to understand the course that you're on. I don't presume to know the path that God has chosen for you to walk. I refuse to be presumptuous in saying, well, if I made it, anybody can make it. Because I don't know what you've been through, and I don't know what you're going through, and, and I don't know the kind of losses that you have endured, the kind of pain you have felt in your life, in your, in your spirit, and in your body. All I know is Paul said, I finished my course. This is the course God set for me. It's not the same as the course they set for you. And I'm not going to look at you and wonder why my course is harder than yours. I'm just going to do my best to finish my course and cross the finish line without bitterness and without resentment. Praise God. Now, there are a lot of things so many different things that Israel experienced on their way uh, to the promised land, trekking through that wilderness uh, that we could talk about, obstacles and, and just, I mean, really there's just crossing the finish line is a title for 20 messages. There's so many different things and I had no idea, honestly, I'm, I promise you, I assure you, I had no idea that this is where God was going to lead me in prayer in pursuit of, uh, of the content of this message. But where he took me was a place that we're familiar with, both uh, biblically and personally. He took me to Merah. He took me to a place that Israel visited in the wilderness. And it was at Merah that Israel received their first dent in their armor of hope. And this occurred just three days into the wilderness. It so happens, if some of you do not recall the story, the people were very dry. Uh, they were very thirsty as they shuffled into Merah, finding a pool there. They were met, uh, their expectation was dashed, and, and they experienced exasperation. Here is water, but we can't drink it. I mean, it's like a, a person that's starving to death that walks into Culver's, and the guy at the counter says, we're fresh out of hamburger. 
Here's the water, and they're, they are destitute, and they're dried out and dehydrated. And instead of experience euphoria, they experienced exasperation. Because the waters were bitter, and the waters were toxic and undrinkable. Exodus 15, 24, and 25, the people murmured against Moses. What shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet, and there he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. How y'all going to act? What y'all going to do now? What's going to be your response now? You see, that's a lot of what a trial is. It's not just getting through. It's how you make it through. So when Moses cast the tree into the pool, the waters were made sweet. And by all appearances, that was the end of that dilemma. But it wasn't the end. It was just the beginning. They drank to their full. They bathed their bodies and their children. They filled their vessels, and then they broke camp, and they moved on. History done. Been there, done that. Got the T-shirt, bought the mug, and now we're going to go on our way. But something happened. An unseen thing happened to the children of Israel at Merah. And it's the same thing that happens to believers today. Henceforth, the admonition about paying attention to what these people experienced in the wilderness. These things were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world have come. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith today, right now, this day in your life, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Say, what are they talking about? The bitter waters of Merah were a provocation to the children of Israel. It's indicated by Moses is in his written account of this thing when he said, there he proved them. It's not about the water. It's not about the pool. It's not about the provision. not about the tree we're going to throw in and sweeten the waters. I'm going to prove you there and see how you do when you're under fire, when you're under pressure, when things don't work out just exactly like, and when you think they should. We were going from one home mission work to another home mission work, and we had a, a house that we needed to sell. Couldn't sell it. And so we tried to rent it. And we drove over from another state to where this house was to meet with a couple that was going to look at our home and consider to rent the house. And they looked at the house. They loved the house. Young couple with, I think, children, if I remember correctly. We'll call you later. Well, they called us later that evening and said, well, we chose another home. We were absolutely devastated. 
I mean, it rocked our world. Come on, God, why didn't you work this out? We went on to lose that house. Lose our investment in that house. It was foreclosed. We lost that house. Big deal because God says, if you give up houses and lands for my sake, you tell me God hasn't ten times a hundredfold given us back whatever we thought we lost. But at that moment, I'm going to tell you, at that moment, we're, our world was rocked. We were a man and woman with faith. And where was our God in our time of need? God was proving us, what are you going to do now? Where are you going to go now? How are you going to deal with this tomorrow? So although the waters of Mary were made sweet, while it appears that this event was simply cataloged within the historical account of Israel's wilderness passage, the people remained embittered. Even though the waters were sweet, now the people are bitter. People are resentful. And it's all the result of their recent distress and the fact that God was on a different schedule than they were. So through the trials and tribulations of this life, they will come and they will go. But what they leave behind is what I'm talking about. What they leave in your soul and your spirit is what I am preaching about right now. It's what God wanted me to talk to you about because we really don't think much about it. Well, I got through that. Did you really? Did you come out of it unscathed? Is there nothing left over in your soul? Is there no resentment or bit? Is there nothing there in the aftermath? God says, yes, I see some things that you need to deal with. There are many precious saints of God who have walked out of the doors of the church for the last time and have never returned. God has helped me to see this, that it wasn't because of the allurement of sin. It wasn't because us Pharisees sitting around saying, well, they just don't pray. They, they, they just don't pray. It's none of those things that we have concocted in our minds in judgment and ridicule of those that have backslidden from the things of God. But it's because they became bitter and they became resentful and they could not deal with that and neither can we. They didn't understand when their prayer life had become stale. I'm, I'm going to talk to you for a few minutes now. They didn't understand that when they went into the prayer room, if they went in, that they didn't really feel very much at all. They struggled with why they didn't feel God's presence in worship, or maybe they never asked the why. They just know they weren't feeling what everybody else is feeling. There was no explanation why they'd lost their desire for God or why they had little interest in the things of God or little, no burden for the lost and for the unchurched of our city. So we assume that the grip of sin 
is what keeps our prodigals, our sons and daughters from returning to the house of God. But the Lord has showed me that's not that at all. It's bitterness and resentment. Bitterness and resentment. And the reason or the source of that bitterness is not important. I'm going to tell any parent in this room who has a prodigal son or daughter, stop letting the devil blame you for that. None of us are perfect parents, but it's not your fault. They made their choice and their decision. And so the reason they're bitter is not really that important. The reason they're resentful is not that important. No one is to blame. We have all been warned and are presently being warned about the corrosive nature of bitterness. But then we come to Hebrews chapter 12. Wonderful passage of scripture that we know so well. Verse 14, follow peace with all men and holiness with which, without which no man shall see the Lord. And we never read the next verse. We never quote the next verse. We never even think about the next verse. So if you think that what I'm talking about is just so random and not that important, and it might be just one or two, I want you to see what verse 15 says. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many, many be defiled. He didn't talk about the allurement of sin. He doesn't talk about the pleasures of sin that are going to steal souls from the kingdom of God. He said, no, what you need to look for, what you need to be vigilant against is that bitterness that will spring up and because it will defile many. Now, most of us are sitting here right now and we're, we're saying to ourselves, I'm not bitter. We are saying in our minds, I have no resentment whatsoever. Don't you even think that I didn't deal with this in my own spirit, in my own soul, when I was preparing to speak these things to you. If the writer of Hebrews, whoever he was, was led of the Spirit to warn us about a root of bitterness whereby many would be defiled, I think it's time standing in the shadow of Israel's passage through the wilderness, that we consider these things. Over in order for us to preserve holiness, I'm listening is what I'm doing. Because there is a pharisaical holiness that has gripped some of God's people. There is a holier than thou that has gripped some of God's people. I'm going to tell you this. The second that you're a 
afflicted with that spirit of self-righteousness as if you are more spiritual, more holy because of things you don't do or things you do. You have done become a Pharisee. But what is this thing that has the potential to keep us from crossing the finish line? That according to the writer of Hebrews is a big deal and could potentially affect and defile many in the kingdom of God. Bitterness is not like an uncomfortable or itchy rash that appears on the skin. You go, wow, what is that? That's really, that's hard. I can get rid of that. Get the calamine lotion out. Get the anti-itch cream out. Got to deal with this. It's, I can see it. I can feel it. And I don't, I don't like it. Bitterness is not like a deep throbbing pain that drives you to the doctor or perhaps to the medicine cabinet to take something to still the pain. Bitterness is an undetectable root, undetectable root that springs up deep within the spirit of an individual. Bitterness, ladies and gentlemen, is blame. I'm going to tell you right now, not one man or woman ever walked out of the door of an apostolic church without blaming somebody. Blaming something for their failure, some reason. It's not me. It's not not did. It's not I've done a... Uh, Blame is bitterness, the manifestation of bitterness. Bitterness is a subconscious abdication of personal responsibility. It's the thief in the night that steals what is sweet out of our individual hearts and spirit and replaces it with an obnoxious odor and with an obnoxious taste. That's bitterness. You're wondering... What I'm talking about, I'm talking about enduring the trials and tribulations of life. Things that are so distasteful, hurtful, repugnant, embarrassing, humiliating. And yet even after we've moved on from those experiences, we walk away with just a little bit of bitterness. And resentment in places that we cannot even reach ourselves. Sometimes we emerge with anger and we go on, the trial is over, but God is not done with us. These feelings lie undetected. I'm almost finished. They lie undetected until they eventually defile and destroy the very vessel within which they have taken root. So the Lord showed me that if we hope to cross the finish line, every one of us must guard our hearts against this insidious and ravaging uh, thing called bitterness because not one of us is immune. The same word admonishes us to avoid the pitfalls of the wilderness. It's the same word that encourages us to follow the example of Job. Somewhere in his wilderness, 
abandoned by all reason, crushed by grief and by physical pain, surrounded by condemning voices. While Job thought that he was speaking to his three accusers, he in fact was actually speaking to Satan himself who was close by and who was hanging on every word that came out of Job's mouth. It's found in Job 19, 23 through 27. Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. That they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself and mine eyes shall behold and not another though my reins be consumed within me. Though he may not have shouted it to the top of his lungs, Job said with resolve and with an eternal commitment that Zophar, Eliphaz, and Bildad would never understand. Thus he said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. <laughs> Worship team, would you please join me on the platform. Job was ready to cross the finish line. He wasn't going to let these three irritants stop him. He wasn't going to let the death of his ten children stop him. He wasn't going to let the loss of his fortune stop him. He wasn't going to let the fact that his body was riddled with boils from the top of his head to the sole of his feet. He said, I'm not going to get bitter against God. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Closing Luke 10, verse 30, Jesus answering said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. By chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him, passed by, side but a certain Samaritan as he journeyed came where he was and when he saw him he had compassion on him and went to him bound up his wounds pouring in oil and wine and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him on the morrow when he departed he took out two pence and gave them to the host and they said, and said unto him, take care of him. Whatsoever thou spendest more when I return, I will repay thee. 
Now, attention is normally drawn to uh, three characters in this story. First of which, we are drawn to the priest, and then we are drawn to the Levite. Of course, Jesus was making a very strong and pungent point by telling this parable. Uh, then we are drawn, of course, to the hero, to the Samaritan. I'm not preaching to the priest today, and I'm not preaching to the Levite today, and I'm not preaching to the Samaritan today. I'm preaching to the man and to the woman that has been wounded and that is hurting, that is uh, struggling with some things in your spirit, in your heart. The man was robbed. He was beaten. He was stripped of his clothing. And he was left naked in the road half dead. For the sake of argument, let's just say that this man was on his way home. He was on his way home. Don't know how long he'd be gone. Don't know how long it had been since his wife and children had seen him. He is on his way home. And he is bearing possessions that the family needs. Now he is on a mission just to make it back home. He's accosted by these thieves, and the result was devastating to him. When a Samaritan saw him, he had compassion on him. The Lord has been dealing with me lately about compassion, compassion. The Greek word for compassion is too long for me to pronounce, and I refuse to butcher it. So just understand that it indicates feelings that are visceral, feelings that are deep, feelings that are, are, need to be addressed, got to do something about the situation. This is opposed to the total lack of empathy, the priest going, oh, well, I'm busy. The Levite, oh, don't have time. He's dirty. He's naked. He's going to die anyway, blah, blah, blah. Visceral feelings. I believe that's what God wants us to feel in our soul when we look at the lost. I believe it's what he wants us to sense deep down within as we consider the trials, the tribulations of our brother and our sister and the things that they are struggling with and struggling through. Now, I'm not saying that we do not care, but ladies and gentlemen, we're so caught up with our own battles and with our own difficulties, our own struggles, our own burdens, that a brother and sister, amen, we really don't have time to worry about what you're going through. And that is the reality of today. After all, we're navigating through our own wilderness. Sometimes it takes everything that we have. We're dealing with our own problems. We're all immersed in a world right now that is coming apart at the seams and 
the high inflation and the, the changing of our culture. And sometimes we are just so beat up uh, ourselves that we don't feel a lot of empathy for that person that's going through their own hell. I'm just telling you like it is and the way God has revealed it to me. But along comes the Samaritan. But when he saw this man, he had to stop. He had to pull over. When we broke down last year on I-10, was broken down five and a half hours, a man pulled over on the side of the road and stayed with us for a couple hours flagging trucks around us so that no one would plow into the back of us. And it was 95 degrees. He would not leave us until we were safe off of the highway. I'm talking about a Samaritan that said, how can I drive off in my air-conditioned truck when these people are on the side of the road? So he did something. The Samaritan did something. And uh, he poured oil and wine. Then he bandaged the man and he put him on his own beast and watched and then checked into an inn keeper money to take care of him after he had left. Are you familiar with of the woman with a pot of oil? You know, the creditor came, she said to the prophet Elisha, I don't know what to do. He's going to take my two sons and and I will be alone, and I don't know what to do. And he says, well, what do you have in your house? And she said, well, I got a pot of oil. That's all I got. And so he said, all right, go borrow vessels, not a few, and then bring all those vessels back into your house, close the door, and begin pouring out from your vessel into them. And she did that, filled all the vessels. Wow. She took and sold the oil, paid her creditor, and probably had money left over. What the Lord impressed upon me is what you need is somebody to pour oil into you. Look, I only have one pot. I don't have a lot. I don't have a, I don't have a tanker truck behind me full of full of oil, but what God impressed upon me, what we need to do, because some of you are saying, doesn't anybody know how bad I'm hurting? Doesn't anybody understand how deeply I am depressed and oppressed? Doesn't anybody know where I'm at and I'm barely shuffling along in my own life? I'm barely making it. Doesn't anybody realize how lost I am right now? How broken I am right now? How much I'm hurting right now? Oh yeah, we realize it because God is here now to take care of some things in your life. So what he wants you to do, would you stand with me? He wants us to pour oil from our vessel into yours. He wants us to pour out of ourselves. But I don't have that much myself. That's the point. You give what you have 
And God will replenish your vessel when you pour out into somebody else that's broken and empty and hurting. It's like the blessing when the oil was poured upon Aaron's head. It ran down his head, his miter, his garment, and dripped upon the ground. And it's there, the Bible says, that God commanded the blessing. No, you won't tell anybody. You'll just bear up and walk into the house of God like everything is fine, but everything is not fine. There's a little root inside of us that's gnawing at us, gnawing at our faith, gnawing at our resolve, telling us the inner voice from hell that God doesn't love you and God doesn't care for you. And see, God didn't work it out and God didn't do what you believed him to do. That's what that voice of bitterness says to us. And it's broken down the faith of multitudes. But I'm exposing it today. I'm exposing it right here and right now. Brother Rudd, if you could be so kind, we have a short video for you, and then we're going to open the altar and prepare to pray for you and for others. You'll get there, don't worry. We're patient. We're not going anywhere.
get in that place that's just beating you up, you can't seem to get out, I'm going to tell you what you need to do. You need to latch on to God's Word. Some scriptures that encourage you. I'm not saying I'm in that place, But I've been meditating on some scripture the last few weeks that every time I quote this, it sends an anointing into my spirit. You see, God's word will not fail you. What I've been meditating on are these words. Revelation chapter 7, verse 11 and 12, and all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God. That moves me. I have read it and quoted it a hundred times. But then it says that these angels that fell before the throne on their faces, they said this, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. When you're in that long stretch of wilderness and you can't find your way out and nothing seems to break. You get into the word and you find you something that encourages you and you live it and you breathe it and you meditate on it and you quote it day and night and that is what will take you through. I think it's time that we learn to ask for help when we need it. There's so many people that they just ask for help. They'd still be in church. Most of the time, they don't even realize what's going on. But now we do because we've exposed the devil's lie. We're all better for it. Amen.
Jesus. Let's praise the Lord one more time. Yeah. 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 Yeah.